This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we explore how teachers navigate their practice in challenging circumstances. My guest is Chris Souten. Chris works in the field of English language teaching and international education and has conducted teacher training and educational research in many countries, including Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, Nigeria, Nepal, India, Somaliland, and Indonesia. He's interested in the small p politics of teaching. Language is a very, very political device, and the choice of language for education is seen in those political terms. And I think that's especially important in, in many areas where there are very few public services. In many poorer parts of the world, the primary school is the only public-facing institution in that area. And so it can become political football between the dominant groups in that area. Chris Souten's new book is Teaching in Challenging Circumstances, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Chris Souten, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Good to be here. Can you tell me or describe some of the difficulties that a teacher might face when she or he is sort of teaching students who are multilingual? I think it's an interesting question that you ask straight away, Will, that we see multilingualism as a problem. And it's often framed in in this kind of way. And I think that's one of the challenges of working in multilingual situations, that we see students who speak lots of languages as being a problem rather than as a resource. You know, in many poorer communities around the world, languages are one of the, the biggest and brightest resources they have. So I think there's an issue there already. And we, and we see some of those problems in things like language of instruction policies around the world, where even though there is clear evidential research that students learn best when they learn in a language that they speak or speak to some degree, so many students are marginalized throughout the world by not being able to access education in one of those languages. Ten years ago, Carol Benson and Stephen Walters in an academic article estimated around 40% of children didn't learn in their first language. I don't know what the data is now, but I'm sure it's it's even higher than that 40% figure. So, yeah, languages of instruction, if students can't learn in a language which they know, then the gap between the educational haves and has-nots is, is just going to grow exponentially. And I think it's particularly challenging in a formal education systems where assessment is so important. It's one thing to not learn in a language uh, that you speak, but it's quite another thing to be assessed in that way, especially when exams, etc. are so high stakes. So this leads to issues of things like epistemic justice, you know, and how can students fairly acquire the knowledge or the skills or the abilities or the competencies they need in order to to lead the good life? I mean, so in a way, there are those challenges for the student. But you also are saying that there's great value, like we might actually frame this issue differently. Having a multilingual student body in a classroom is actually beneficial. What are some of those benefits? Well, so for example, my background, my kind of where I work is in English language teaching. And when you see students who are, you know, there's a thing called safe talk. So when they don't want to push themselves or when they don't have the linguistic resources to go beyond a certain level, they will restrict themselves to only saying certain things, the things that they're comfortable with. If we allow more languages within the classroom, so for example, if we allow more multilingual practices like translanguaging or code switching, then we're encouraging and empowering students to use those languages as a resource. 
and to talk about the things that they want to do. It also, I think, from the teaching side, can open up a whole load of, of other things as well. So many teachers also, you know, one of the reasons we see in so many challenging circumstances why we see teacher-centered models, you know, a transmissive model of teaching, is because the teachers themselves don't feel comfortable in the language of instruction. It might be their second or third or fourth language that they are using in order to teach. And so it's no surprise that they restrict themselves or they use drilling and memorization and these sorts of techniques rather than a more learner-centered pedagogy. In certain countries that are multilingual across diverse population, do governments allow teaching in different languages that is sort of, you know, more conducive to learning in that particular environment? Like, are there policies that allow multiple languages to operate simultaneously within an education system. Yeah, the language policy picture is very mixed around the world. Uh, some examples where teaching is allowed in multiple languages, more at the primary level, and then maybe as they go to the secondary level, it becomes more restricted to national languages or more dominant languages. And then similarly to tertiary level, it's a sort of a narrowing pyramid all the way where you end up with often English at the top of that pyramid. But you often find those dominant languages throughout. And I think that's one of the challenges of language policy is that it is so closely linked to the politics of it. And, you know, language is a very, very political device. And the choice of language for education is seen in those political terms. And I think that's especially important in, in many areas where there are very few public services. In many poorer parts of the world, the primary school is the only public-facing institution in that area. And so it can become political football between the dominant groups in that area. So you see, for example, school governance boards are not decided by who is the best or most appropriate person to support that school. It's who the dominant political forces are in that particular area. So I think that's one of the challenges. But the whole time, children are missing out on the only chance that they're going to get of education because of the language policy choices which are being made. And the person in between those policies and the student is the teacher. How do teachers begin or might begin to navigate some of these politics that you're explaining? I think that's one of the big challenges. You know, teachers do have to navigate this and it, and it is difficult. And the problem is often that they are making pedagogic choices because of political issues. And that can't be right. It can't be right that the choices they make in the classroom, they should, the choices they make in the classroom should be dictated by what is best for those children who are in front of them on that particular day. What's going to maximise their learning experience and maximize their learning outcomes it, it shouldn't be because of the you know the political influences or the perception of that particular language in that area uh, you see this for example in rwanda you know with a very particular political history you know there the language of instruction has shifted between french and english and all sorts of other languages king rwanda was in there for some time so it, it's it's very confused picture and it changes on a regular basis. And so for teachers, it's extremely hard to know how to react or how to respond to that. And part of the problem is sometimes 
the language of instruction decisions are made without thinking of the resources there are in the country. So in Rwanda, when they shifted to English uh, a few years ago, you know, it was clear that most Rwandan teachers had very, very low levels of English and would not be able to teach effectively in that language. We see something similar happening in South Sudan, where English is the official language of instruction there. And, and you know, as the world's newest nation state, that was the choice that was made. Again, for political reasons. It wants to position itself as a modern, forward-looking state, and because of the history of Arabic language of instruction in that particular country. So for the teacher at the classroom level, it's a very, very difficult picture, and it's so often it's caused by this political interference. And so what advice would you give to a teacher who, in Rwanda or South Sudan, who all of a sudden is sort of told, you have to teach your content, it could be whatever subject, in English, and yet your English skills aren't that good or you're not that confident teaching in a foreign language. What advice would you give that teacher? I mean, again, it's difficult because what I'm able to say now from my position, you know, sitting in the UK and looking at this objectively is potentially very different from what a teacher in that classroom who understands the local context is able to do. But I still think in many, many situations, teachers do have that influence on their classroom. You know, what happens within those four walls, it can be dictated by the teacher. So there are micro-resistances that teachers can do. They can allow students to translate for each other, for example. You know, even, I've seen it myself, even in areas where English is supposed to be the language of instruction, local languages are commonly used there in, in order to do that. So, I mean, it does happen. Teachers can do things, but it can be a risk for them to do that in certain situations. It can be a, a political risk or a risk to themselves if they make those decisions because language is so closely allied to political decisions. And it may be that you are thought to be from a particular political group if you choose to use that language as a language of instruction against the official policy. I guess this is a slightly different question but why is it that english is seen at you know at the top of that hierarchy that you were explaining earlier why is it that the newest nation state south sudan has decided that english should be the national language despite that country or that part of the world having a very different sort of tradition of language. I think there's a, a range of reasons for that, but I think that the dominant one is that English is seen as the ticket to success. You know, English is seen as a way of advancing yourself and your family and of getting a, a secure and decent job. I think that fundamentally underlies why that happens. And, and I think you see that a lot with, so we haven't talked about, is the rise of low-cost private schools, for example, in much of sub-Saharan Africa, where almost exclusively they uh, use English as the medium of instruction there, even from, you know, age of four, five, six, or whatever it may be. You know, it's almost seen as acquiring English is the most important thing that an education can provide. And it's not even clear if that is for practical reasons or whether it's just as a English as a positional good. If you are able to speak English, then you can be part of the club. You can get these particular mm. jobs. So it's seen as a way of maneuvering into those sorts of situations. So, I mean, I think that is what is deeply sort of underlying that principle. As, I guess, political economies change in these different countries, and I'm thinking here of, say, 
the Belt and Road Initiative by China, which is putting a huge amount of investment in countries across the world, pretty much. Do you see the sort of desire for different languages changing or even potentially language policies changing to, you know, for in this case, focus a little bit more on Mandarin rather than English, because learning Mandarin might actually be a better ticket to a job. I think certainly there will be probably an increase in, in seeing Chinese as an additional language and learning it there. I'm not sure I see it as entering into sort of language of instruction so much, certainly not for a long time. I think still so many policies in so much of the world are still influenced by their colonial histories, you know, the English and the French and some cases Portuguese, Spanish, etc, etc. So I think that we're still in that sort of late post-colonialism where those languages still are the languages of the elite in many of those uh, particular countries. At the moment, that doesn't feel the same with Chinese, but... You know, if we're still here in 50 years, uh, Will, and Fresh Ed is still going, then we can revisit that. So your book is called Teaching and Challenging Circumstances. And when I started reading it, the first thought I had was about COVID-19 because, you know, we're still going through it. Teaching has been completely upended over these last two plus years for pretty much everybody from all levels of schooling. It certainly has upended my teaching at higher education. So what would you say in terms of teachers who are having to navigate this really complex situation? What tips do you give that teacher? Like, how does a teacher continue to teach well in the pandemic? It's really, really hard. I think, you know, at the time of speaking in February 2022, you know, we see in many parts of the world, children going back into school or having recently gone back into face-to-face teaching. I think it's really difficult. There's been huge gaps in education. Children are out of the habit of that. Some children haven't ever been to formal education. So there's all these sorts of challenges that teachers, again, are, are having to face. And teachers are, again, responsible for trying to sort out these challenges. Uh, and I think that's one of the big challenges for teachers themselves, the teachers who I work with, is that so much is expected of them. They're expected to wear so many different hats, you know, to manage children back into school, to deal with their trauma. They're at the front end of these political and social and cultural issues. But they're also expected to somehow teach and teach particular subjects or in all sorts of things so there's there's so many challenges that teachers themselves face in that situation in terms of i think what they can try and do i think one important thing is to try and present the classroom as a safe space you know students Mm. have had so many challenges education has been so hard they may have negative views of education or they may have no views of education because of what's happened in, in recent times and so it's important that teachers try and create a safe space in that classroom a place where they can trust the teacher they can trust the other students. I think that's a really important thing and it it actually links back to what we're talking about with language of instruction as well and I think all these things are sort of tied up together. If you know we have some students going into school having not been there for 18 months, two years and they have to be taught in a language which they don't know which is a language of another group that, uh, you know, they don't know, that can feel like an unsafe space. It can actually create negative feelings towards education. So, you know, again, I think language of instruction you know, does underpin so many of, of these issues. And it's quite interesting that the at least 
in the media, the discourse is around this idea of learning loss. And it's a negative sort of connotation. And I could imagine being a teacher and feeling incredibly stressed that, you know, everyone assumes there's been this learning loss and now it's on you to fill the gap and then build on that and hopefully, you know, have learning gains going forward. I mean, that must be so much pressure. To me, the idea of, you know, we've seen many parts of the world ideas about accelerated learning and all these sorts of things. But I always feel when I see the words accelerated learning, it feels a bit like a sort of snake oil situation. You know, if we can accelerate learning at will, why didn't we do it before? It doesn't seem to make sense to me. I would also, again, question the premise of that. There's a fantastic educationist called uh, Stephen Heppel, and he talks about well, actually the, about the COVID generation being a golden generation because they have learned so much in that time, so many different skills that they wouldn't have had the opportunity to acquire at any other point. Uh, and some of the relationships they've had with other people, some of the things they've learned online, not just with their parents, all sorts of things that they've learned and done differently. Resilience, independence, confidence, all those sorts of things, those sort of soft 21st century skills, whatever we want to call them. So it, it makes a very persuasive argument, I think, about that. They haven't been in face-to-face formal education, but they have been learning. And again, I think that's an important to differentiate those two things. I think that's right. You know, that's why that discourse around learning loss is so narrow-sighted. It doesn't see all of those other spaces of learning that exist always outside of formal schooling, right? Formal schooling is just one small site of learning. Children learn everywhere in the world. Exactly. But I think those two have become synonymous, really, you know, Mm. formal learning and learning. But as you say, it's it's not the same. And in many parts of the world, they are very, very different. But I think that's one of the challenges is to, you know, formal learning is still seen as the, the most important kind of learning wherever you may be. And, and maybe the impact of COVID gives us an opportunity to take stock of that and, and see it in a different light. Another thing that COVID has really sort of taught us is the value of schools in communities. You know, in some places, like you said, the school is the only public facing institution even in the uk where we live you know schools fed so many children and when they closed people all of a sudden realized how valuable school was beyond that formal learning and of course teachers are sort of at the center of this as well right they are the sort of linchpin between community members yeah just between and among community members in many ways because it happens those interactions happen inside schools and through school in this covid period, how can teachers sort of support and build some of these school community interconnections that we now realize are so valuable? First thing I would say is I think it's a a damning incitement of you know, the political process and the governance in this country that, you know, it it took a crisis like this to recognise that schools were, you know, feeding students, you know, feeding children and, you know, they were the the main source of food. But I think that is, I say that because I think it's an important point that schools shouldn't be replacing those sorts of functions of government. You know, schools are crucial. They are primarily places for learning and for the, the dissemination and the sharing of information. They shouldn't become, you know, one size fits all kind of centres for all these sorts of social problems. You know, we see it now with you know, things like mental health services and stuff, you know, are being led primarily often by teachers or other school practitioners. You know, schools obviously have a role to play in those sorts of social issues, but they shouldn't be the leaders on that. 
specialist services are needed. And again, it comes mm. back to this point, you know, teachers are fantastic. They do so much. They cannot feed children. They cannot be the social services. They cannot be the front line for all of these different things. So absolutely, schools should be at the center of communities, but they shouldn't be replacing those other functions of the body politic in those communities. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, a biology teacher in high school shouldn't be the one that the community relies on to provide mental health services to children in that community or feeding children because, you know, there's high rates of poverty and larger underlying issues that need to be resolved. But unfortunately, in the meantime, it does fall on teachers, right? I mean, like, that is what's happening. Exactly. And that's the problem. The kind of problem is that, that teachers will do that because teachers do see it as a vocation. And But that is no way to run an education system. You know, there's a quotation I use in my book by uh, Alicia Ferguson Garcia, and she says, uh, I was blindsided by the emotional aspect of teaching. I didn't know how to handle it. I was hurt by my students' pain and it was hard for me to leave that behind when I went home. You know, and I think lots of teachers feel very, very similar. But in terms of the long-term sustainability of a system, long-term teachers' mental health and emotional well-being, this is not sustainable. This is going to come crashing down. We already see it in this country, in many countries, where teachers are leaving the profession for these reasons, because it's just very, very hard. You work sort of all around the world with different teachers in challenging circumstances. What do we know about the mental health and the pressure and stress that teachers have faced during COVID and how are some teachers responding? You know, some of the examples of countries where you work, what do we know? Again, not to be difficult, Will, but I, I kind of question the idea of the mental health because in many countries where I've worked, things like mental health are not really seen or they're not really understood or they're not understood in the same ways mm. as we would understand them, say, in the West. But certainly what I do see is stress. You know, you know teachers are having to manage a lot of different stuff. And yet some manage it well, some mask it and get on with it and some don't deal with it well at all you know i think that's fairly typical kind of around the world i'm not sure it's it's necessarily sort of country specific but I, what i would say in challenging circumstances is that teachers are having to deal with those issues but without secure work contracts when they're not paid on time where they're not allowed to join a trades union where they haven't got any of these other protections. So they've got the similar stresses and anxieties that, that teachers elsewhere have, but they don't have any of those additional supports. And I think that is what can be harder for them in order to manage. And again, I think in, in many... I've worked, for example, with Syrian teachers in, in Lebanon, Syrian refugee teachers there. And what you see often is the impact of things like vicarious trauma, where they are trying to be so supportive to their students and they hear their students stories and they they know about their lives and they somehow take on that trauma from the children themselves whilst trying to manage their own issues uh, at the same time their own post-traumatic issues as well and again it's so it's it's weighing all these things on top of teachers you know one by one by one by one and um yeah at some point you know some people break some people are resilient but it doesn't make for uh, the best learning environments 
Yeah, I would imagine, you know, it's a, a bad system, like you said, and teacher working conditions are student learning conditions. Won't be good results in the end. In the different contexts that you know well, has the pandemic sort of created any positive changes or benefits to schooling and teaching that you've seen? I think it's hard to say at the moment because we're still sort of emerging out of it. I mean, I think there are certainly opportunities. I think COVID-19 does present opportunities to perhaps reimagine education systems systems and to see schools in different ways and perhaps there's opportunities for you know the community and schools to link together but in a more positive way where people in the community don't be, feel afraid about going into school or looking at how we can access some of those positive aspects of the local community where you know, people come in and share their oral histories about the local area or talk about their profession or you know, where we can recruit more teaching assistants who can speak the local languages in order to support children in the classroom. I think there is an opportunity to reimagine the school after all of this and not be so driven by formal assessment processes and, and all these sorts of things. I think there is an opportunity to do that, but I do worry that won't be followed through with, that we will just resort to type and we'll talk about accelerated learning and the importance of high stakes exams and, and all the rest of it. I do worry that there could be a, a narrowing of this. I think we are at an important point in that process. Going back to this, I guess the underlying idea here is about the role of teachers and the politics that teachers sort of navigate on a daily, everyday basis in the classroom, but also within the communities. And of course, managing huge external events like COVID-19 that has just upended everything. So, you know, navigating these politics, what does this tell us about quality education since, you know, the sustainable development goals in 2015 made a very big proclamation saying that we need to achieve quality education and inclusive education by 2030. You know, how do you see that goal in relation to these sort of small p politics that that teachers are navigating. Yeah, I mean, I think if we take it just a step back to think about the Millennium Development Goals and what the aim of what they were trying to do. You know, I think one of the positives of the Millennium Development Goals is that they did get more kids into school. That is, uh, you know, but it was, to my mind, largely a, a quantitative measure. The problem with it was that I think a lot of the things that go along with that were not done. The good quality teacher training, all those sorts of things, better textbooks that better represent you know the people who are going to use them all those sorts of issues were not done and and also i don't think the sustainable development goals addresses that in a meaningful way either certainly not to the extent which is needed again just to give you an example you know language is barely mentioned anywhere in the sustainable development goals i think it's in one optional thematic indicator it's not you know i don't think partly it's because of the way that these goals are agreed upon by you know all the member states of the united nations you know language is such a political issue that it's easier to ignore or sideline rather than address. But the impact that that can have on systems is huge, as we've talked about mm. today. So I think, yeah, the SDGs are, of course, laudable and everyone would agree with them. But in terms of the actual impact that they're going to have, you know, on a classroom in Burkina Faso or in, you know, Laos or wherever it may be, yeah, I'm not so sure. Chris Souten, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. Chris Sutton's new book is Teaching in Challenging Circumstances. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Reviews really do help. Freshhead's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Oba Femian Gunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afrobotung, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.